Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Good morning. Welcome those of you who are here and those of you following online. Uh, if you are new, we've been going through the book of Matthew for, well, since last fall. Uh, and so far, Jesus has, has done pretty much what we expect Jesus to do. Jesus doing Jesus-y things like walking on water, feeding multitudes, confronting the Pharisees, teaching crowds, healing the sick, all while being full of compassion and power. Jesus doing what Jesus does. But then we get to this passage, and it doesn't seem like the Jesus we know and love. In fact, I was pretty much confused by your clapping because you get to this place and he appears cold toward this woman, if not altogether demeaning. And is Jesus like, I don't know, uh, confused? Because he appears to change his mind toward the end of the text. What do we make of this? Well, broadly speaking, this is not a, a, a unique experience for you and I as we engage the scriptures. If we can zoom out for a second, um, we often come to the Bible and we'll see things that seem out of place. And we have a couple choices. One, we could look at it and be, okay, that's weird, and then move on. Or we could like dig a little deeper. And I've found that when you dig a little deeper, you are rewarded with something profound. And I think life-changing and what we're going to see today modeled in this desperate mother is a mindset and a posture toward Jesus that is not only foundational to a thriving prayer life, shout out week of prayer, but is also will help you get in sync with reality and how things really work because Jesus is going to remind us that he is always there, always leading Moving us, nudging us to go exactly where he wants us to be to receive the abundant life that he came to give, it, to give us. And so with verse 21, I'm just going to walk through this again and, and get a little context and get into really what I think is very, very profound and very, very life changing if you could grab a hold of it. It says that Jesus went away there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And this, this word withdrew means that he was looking for a break, looking for a little respite. Jesus He's God, but he's human, uh, and he's tired. In fact, uh, Mark's, uh, uh, Mark's version of the story, it says that he entered a house, and he didn't want anyone to know. He was hiding. He was, major, he was having a major introvert moment. He puts on sunglasses, wears a hat, trying to hide, looking for a little me time. I mean, he'd been healing a bunch of people. Um, he put out a lot of physical energy. I, I think he's tired for that reason, but I think the real reason why he was tired was because the Pharisees wore him out. And there's two reasons why I think that. Number one, religious people are exhausting. Um, I mean, like, if I preach a sermon and you come, the first thing you say to me is technically, like, I, you know, just, I don't want to hear that. Secondly, like, religious people are like referees. Um, they're on the field, but they're not really playing the game. They just run around, blow the whistle, and tell everyone else, what they're doing wrong, and they're absolutely exhausting. And I think Jesus is worn out. But, and, and I think the reason why, the second reason why that I think this is true is he went to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, this is modern-day Lebanon, and notoriously unclean. 
Like, so if you're here last week, we learned, we learned that Jesus was challenging the Pharisees on what they thought was clean and unclean. He says, I know where I'll hide. I will hide in the most unclean place that I know of. In fact, this would have been like Jesus saying, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the Vegas Strip. Uh, I'm going to go to the French Quarter of Mardi Gras. I'm going to go to a place where there's guaranteed to be no religious people. And this is where he goes and hides. But it doesn't really work because lo and behold, verse 22, a Canaanite woman. Now, if you know your Hebrew history, actually even your modern history, there is a long-standing battle between uh, the Hebrew people and the Canaanites. The, the land of Canaan was meant to be a part of the promised land, but they uh, did not take the land and they've been fighting it. So they were sworn enemies. And behold, this Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And there's nothing like the boldness of a mama whose child needs help. This woman religiously had everything against her. I mean, she was, I mean, so she was a Gentile. She was a woman. Her daughter had an unclean spirit. Uh, She knew in every way she was unclean, therefore disqualified from approaching this rabbi, much less entering uh, the house of this rabbi. Uh, it's like you and I tomorrow, if we were to go and apply for a million dollar loan, knowing that we have a 500 credit score, two bankruptcies and no collateral. We're like, Come, you know, give me a loan. I want a loan. We're like, who are you? What are you doing here? You have no business asking for a loan. This woman had no business. She had nothing to stand on. And this word crying or beg is a present progress, uh, present Progressive, which means it was continuous. Like she kept on crying. She kept on begging. She would not take no for an answer. And I just want to pause here for a little bit. And I, and I wonder if there's anything in your life that you're so desperate to get that you won't take no for an answer. I don't know if you know this or not. God wants you to live this way. God wants to put something in your life that you want so much that you're willing to beg and plead and pursue and to go after him. He wants to draw faith and desire out of your life. And if it's not there, maybe God would create a category in your life much like this. Now, the main point of this text, though, and what I think makes this text so interesting and instructive and profound even, uh, is the answer to the question, why is she so bold? Why, in other words, what is the basis for her assertiveness? Now, to be clear, I think uh, the initial burst of boldness is not all that surprising. I mean, a mother's love is in a category all on its own. You have cowards, you have heroes, and then you have mothers. Like, uh, a mother's love is in a category. If, if a child is in danger, it doesn't matter if the mother is weak or strong, introverted or extroverted. It is on. It is on. It is on. That's why they say never get between a mama and her cubs. They don't say don't get between a papa and his cubs. The dad's like, I told them not to do it. They're on their own. And the mama's like, I don't play that game. Somebody's going to die. And they attack. Uh, I don't know if you're supposed to play dead or run, but... It's not going to matter. I don't even know why they have those rules. But anyway, so her first response is not all surprising. But listen, her second response 
is history changing. In fact, her second response had an effect 1,500 years later on the Protestant Reformation. And it just had this massive effect on the, on the reformers in, in such a profound way. But before we get to her second response, how does Jesus answer this desperate mother? Well, um, this is embarrassing. He doesn't answer. Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. Go to Jesus, he'll help you. Cast your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Well, I'm casting, and he's not caring. He's not even looking at me. He will not answer. Oh, well, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm weary. I'm coming. But I'm getting nothing. Have you ever prayed to God and gotten crickets? Or even worse, I think, is you counsel someone else, hey, I, you got this problem, you should go pray about it. They go pray about it, they get nothing. Ever been there? Now, I can see there's really no tension here because you know how the story's gonna end. You're not all that worried about this mother. You know how the story ends, don't you? You know how it ends. Well, let me ask you a question. When you don't hear anything, do you know how the story ends? The answer is, you don't, but Jesus does. And he's up to something. He's up to something. He wants something for you. Maybe, just maybe, God is up to something you cannot see, cannot hear, and perhaps even fathom. Let's look on the bright side for a second. No answer is better than the answer no. No answer is better than the answer no. And so Matthew 20, uh, verse 23, the disciples, they come and they beg him, send her away for she is crying out after us. I mean, this woman burst through the doors. Um, she, you know, like crying out to him, please help me. Jesus essentially says, you know, talk to the hand, but she will not stop. She keeps going. She keeps going. She gets keeps going, and the disciples want Jesus to heal her, not because they care about her, they just want her to go away because they're annoyed. And I want you and me to be honest, be honest with ourselves for a second. I mean, I don't know when, when you, how you put yourself in the story and most stories when you read the Bible, but we, we're no better than this. Uh, when it comes to the pain in this world, when it comes to the pain that other people experience, most of the time you and I settle for avoiding the problem versus solving it. And what that reveals to me, which is ugly, no, one's, no one likes this point, by the way, in the sermon. I got no compliments on this part. The biggest reason why you and I avoid a life of service is not because we don't care about other people. It's not because um, we don't want to sacrifice. It's that we're exhausted. And we're exhausted not because of the effort. We're exhausted because of the guilt. If you serve, if your motivation for serving other people is guilt, you know how you know if your motivation is guilt? If for serving other people, is you're tired. If your motivation is love and other people, and you serve people, 
that fills your tank. I've got good news for you. I've got real good news for you. Jesus came to take your guilt and your shame. And if you actually give it to him and you trust in him, what's going to happen? He's going to replace motivated service, motivated by guilt and shame. And he's going to replace it with love and purpose. And it's going to feel a whole lot different than doing it. Well, I'm a part of this community and I don't want to be the odd one out. And if I, I, I got to do it, it's for the children. I told you you weren't going to like it. Anyway, come to Jesus. He'll take that away from you. So then he, verse 24, he gets into it a little bit. He says, he kind of explains some things here. He says, he says, he answered. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, mind you, he's still not looking at this woman. He's not answering actually the woman's question. He's answering the disciples' question. And he is simply explaining to them the assignment that he has been given by the Father, that his mission was to Israel. And he would give the church the assignment to take that from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, which, by the way, is like God's plan uh, you know, for all time. And even when you read the Old Testament, it's like, hey, look, this is never meant to be just a Jewish thing. This is about being a light to the nations. He says that that time has not yet come. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. I'm going to rise victoriously over Satan, sin, and death. And then in that commissioning moment, now you disciples go from Jerusalem into all the, uh, the ends of the earth. In other words, he's saying to his disciples, I am not motivated by her need, and I'm not motivated by your annoyance. I am motivated by the Father's mission. I am motivated by something bigger. But this woman keeps coming. Verse 25, Lord, help me. She keeps coming. She keeps coming. She keeps coming. And then verse 26, and he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's like, okay, time out here. Jesus, did you just call this woman a dog? Seriously? I am so disappointed I thought we were going to be buds, but you're just like every other first century Jewish male, racist, sexist, and a religious hypocrite, which by the way, some people think this about this text. Jesus here is, I mean, he's a good guy. He, does, he means well, but he's just a product of his environment, which is racist and sexist. And Jesus too has some things to learn in these view would overemphasize his humanity at the expense of his divinity and, and would say that he too had to learn. And really the, the point of the story is that this woman has something uh, to show Jesus and Jesus learns that he is actually being sexist and racist and through her faith, he is healed of his dudeness or whatever. And if you're not picking up my sarcasm, let me at least explain it. Um, I've got some problems with this, mainly with like, Jesus has demonstrated so clear. I mean, it's just not understanding the fullness of who Jesus is. Even up to this point, Jesus has clearly demonstrated that he is more than willing to rage against cultural norms, especially sexist one, especially racist one. I mean, he meets the woman at the well, I mean, 700 years of, of racial tension. He steps into that. He, he, he talks to this woman, a woman, by the way, that was an outcast in her own people. 
and receives a drink of water from her. And it just blows everybody's mind. He shields a woman caught in the act of adultery from his religious accusers. He heals the child of a centurion, a Roman centurion, mortal enemies of the Jewish people. He goes ballistic in the temple, throws over tables, says, my house shall be a house of prayer to the nations. And he was exhausted by the religious barriers that people put up. He did not come to affirm these barriers. He came to tear them down. And ultimately he would in his body when he goes to the cross. So it is a total, total, total miss. But what is he doing? Because it seems like he's that. Well, there's a couple things going on. The first thing he is doing, he is explaining a a priority, and he does that through a parable, an illustration, an analogy. And, and And there is a word for dog that means scavenger, but the word that he uses here is for household pet, like puppy, Fido. And he's saying, look, you know how families work. In fact, in Mark's version, he says, let the children be fed first. He says, look, you know how it works in in a household. You know, the children eat uh, at the table and then the puppies. So, yes, the puppies are going to eat, but it's not their time yet. Uh, The meal is to be served to the children first and then to the puppies. That is the order. Uh, Jesus, his ministry, if you don't know this, it, it was to Israel. He didn't go to Greece. He didn't go to Rome. He didn't go to Asia. He didn't do what the disciples did. He concentrated his entire ministry on Israel because he had to do something very important. He, his, his main mission was to reveal to Israel that he was the promised Messiah, that he was the fulfillment of all of the law and the prophets. And then he would be crucified for the sin of the world and then raised in your life, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And then he would say, go into all the nations. And so what he's really saying here is there's an order. It's not a no, it's a not yet. I'm feeding the children of Israel first, and then it will be your turn. And he's playing this part to draw this woman out. So two things he's doing. He's, he's, he's communicating an order through this analogy and this illustration. The second thing he's doing, he's trying to draw this woman out. And I think this is really important for you and I to grasp. Because maybe, just maybe, he's trying to draw you out. And by maybe, I mean definitely is. (laughs) So, I did this with my kids. I remember when they were younger, they'd come to me and say, Daddy, I want an ice cream. And I'd say, oh, man. (laughs) I don't know about that. Like, do you know how expensive ice cream is? No, Daddy, how much? It's, it's like $5. Do you know how much $5? You're know, like four years old. Maybe you know how $5 is? No. Well, do you have $5? No, Daddy, I don't have $5. Well, how are we going to get ice cream if you don't have any money? Hey, there's some construction workers over there. Let's go find out if you can work for them for a little bit, and then you could get the $5, and then you could get the ice cream. Now, am I being serious or do I have something in mind? I'm doing a couple things. One of my, well, I'm having a little fun with them. But, <laughs> but secondly, I'm trying to teach them like there's no ice cream tree. Um, ice cream costs money. I want you to know the value of this. I want you to know that, you know, work, money, you know, reward kind of thing. But also, um, I want to pull out 
the desire factor as well. In fact, if you're a teacher here, you probably do this with your kids. It may be a, like a, 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 a way that you teach your kids. If you are a coach of a sport, you absolutely do this. At least I experience this. Maori, I don't think you can do this in 30 seconds. Okay, I'm doing this in 30 seconds, which is to draw something out of me. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to draw something out of this woman. And we're going to see here in a minute, he does. And she is an example to us in ways that you maybe have not yet considered. So he's drawing this woman out and she responds. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. So she's engaging him in this illustration. Very fascinating. I mean, she gets the parable. I don't know of anyone yet, the disciples certainly not, no one has actually got a, a parable of, of Jesus on the first try. And this woman is engaging him on this story. And he says, yes, she says, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And we have a pet, his name's Dolly. We have a dog named Molly. And we have a few rules as it relates, we have three rules as it relates to food and the dog. That, that most of, there's one of us that doesn't follow it very well. And um, the first rule is no human food. I know, I know. And then the second rule is, if you do give them human food, uh, not at the table. The third rule, though, is if things accidentally fall off the table, it's fair game. You know, if, if, he, if, if, you know, if, if he gets it before you get it, it's his. And, and, and that's what's amazing about this story, is like she engages Jesus in the parable. He says this illustration, tells this parable. She gets it and she begins to engage him. And this is what she's saying. And this is so profound. She's like, okay, yes, I am not a part of the covenant people. I agree. I agree. You must prioritize the children. But don't forget that the puppies eat too. And I'm not asking for the choice more. You need to, that's Israel's, that's not mine. But the crumbs that fall off the table is all that my daughter needs. Jesus gives this woman in this parable, in this parable, Jesus gives her both a challenge and an offer. Gives her a challenge and an offer and she gets it. She grabs a hold of the challenge and she grabs a hold of the offer. And what I want for everyone in this room is to grab a hold of both. What is the challenge? Okay, she first responds to the challenge. She's like, okay, I get you. I don't deserve a seat at the table. I'm not worthy. Listen to this. I accept my unworthiness. She doesn't huff and puff. Uh, she doesn't call her lawyer. She doesn't say, I'm standing on my rights. She doesn't, she doesn't say, how dare you call me this? She says, okay, you're right. I am unworthy. She accepts the verdict over her life from Jesus that she does not deserve to ask for this. Are you there yet? But then she says, that's part A, but then she says, there's more than enough at your table for everyone in the world. Your goodness is bigger 
than the people of Israel. In fact, even the crumbs off your table will heal my daughter. She is wrestling with Jesus in the most amazing way. I mean, think like Abraham in Genesis 18. If you don't remember that, Jesus was like, or excuse me, uh, Abraham in Genesis was, was like, I am just dust and ashes. But, not based upon me, but based upon you, will you, will you heal this city? Will you spare this? Think of Jacob, wrestles with God. I will not let go until you bless me. And I think this is really important And this is the main point, because I think this woman has something to teach the church in the West generally and our church specifically, because there's a kind of assertiveness in this woman that is absolutely elusive to us. In the West, we only know about an assertiveness based on our rights. We don't know how to be assertive until we are standing on the basis of our merits or our rights, on our own dignity, our own goodness or decency. So we will assert, this is what I deserve, this is what I'm owed, and I'm going to shout, kick, and scream until I get my way. Now, I'm not going to name any names, but I was talking to someone last night where they didn't get what they deserve, and they're ready to huff and puff. It might be me, it might not be, I'm not sure. Um, That is not the kind of assertiveness that we see in this woman. This woman is assertive. She's after it. But she is not asserting for her rights. This is rightless assertiveness. And we don't know anything about this. She... Because if we did, we would be so in sync with reality, we would be thriving in our relationship with God, and we would have so much meaning in our life, we wouldn't know what to do with it. Are you interested? Here's a woman. This is how you get, this is so powerful. This is the gospel. This is how you became a Christian. And this is how you continue to thrive from one degree of glory to the next. Here's a woman who completely accepts her unworthiness and yet is assertive. And again, this does not compute to us because what other motivation is there for our assertiveness except for our own dignity, our own rights, and our own goodness? She doesn't assert herself based upon her worthiness. She asserts herself based upon his worthiness. And it changes history. She's like, I'm not asking you to heal my daughter based upon my goodness, but yours. Effectively saying, there will be no end to my asking because I believe there is no end to your goodness. So I can go all night because I am not here to get what I deserve I am not here on the basis of my goodness. I am here for one reason and one reason only. I'm basing my asking on your goodness. And to hold those two things is a powerful, powerful combination. It's called the gospel. The gospel is called the power of God. You want the power of God in your life? Believe the gospel, which is to simultaneously believe that you are so unworthy that Jesus had to die for you, but that you are so loved that he was glad to do it. 
And when you grab a hold of those things, so give me what I deserve, not on the basis of my goodness. She gets this. She gets this. And in this moment, I just see like, man, heaven's just like, whoa, whoa. In fact, Jesus says, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was instantly healed. He just, he does what I do sometimes with Ollie. He just shoved the whole meal off the table. And he was going to do it the whole time. But he was drawing something out of her that she needed to believe. And this, trans, this had an effect on the Reformation and what is known as Protestant theology, uh, which I assume you believe if you're here um, at some level. Is it's, this is the basis of it. That I'm unworthy, but he is ultimately worthy. I am infinitely unworthy, and he is infinitely worthy. That is the gospel, and that is what we hold on to. And he just shoves this whole meal. If you approach God based upon your merit, your dignity, your goodness, he has nothing to offer you because it's filthy rags. But if your pursuit of him, if your assertiveness in prayer and contending for God to stretch out his mighty hand to serve, to save, not based on your goodness, but his. And there's two ways. There's two ways that you can, you can base your assertiveness on your own goodness. And there's two ways, in effect, to show contempt for who God is. One is the obvious way, which is to pound, to puff your chest and be offended and this is who I am and I'm, I'm a good person. That's clearly standing upon your own goodness, your own worthiness. And God has nothing to offer you. But there's another way that you can trust in your own goodness. Is you just never ask. And you never move. And you never contend. And you never wrestle because you know that you're unworthy. And what business do I have asking him for anything? That's why in the gospel, that's why we see such a clear picture of the gospel. Because to see him as good is to chase after him. If he's so good, then why aren't you chasing him? You either don't think he's good and you think you are or you know that you're unworthy and you have no business doing it. Both is trusting in your own goodness. There's great news. It's, it's, you don't have to be worthy because he is. You let go of that. Let go of like I deserve and I need and this is what I... This, no, no, no. We, we let go of that for he who knew no sin became our sin. He became our unrighteousness. He became our filth so that we could have the righteousness of God. She is standing not on her righteousness. She's standing on his. 
And as we stand on his, man, our life explodes with meaning. I'll tell you what you get. You get what, you, what the kingdom says we get. So when Paul says in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. Everything that you're pursuing in life is that you want those three things. You want, you want peace, you want joy, and you want to know that you're right, that you're okay. We all want that. That's why you work. That's why you play. That's why you do all that you do. That's why you're pursuing God. That's why you're not pursuing God. Those are the things you want. And Jesus is like, I'll give it to you. I want to give it to you the whole time. I will shove the meal right off the table into your lap. But I need to hear two things from you. I need you to admit that you're not worthy. And I need you to admit that I infinitely am. And it's all yours if you want it. That's all. That's the gospel. And she gets it. And we get it theoretically. But it's, it's not always a living reality for us. And the good news is, it's like, we don't have to like, oh, you're right, Brian. I'm just not a very good Christian. I already knew that when I came in. Now you're just telling me. Listen, no, no, no. Hey, don't stand on your Goodness, don't be offended that Jesus would say, Jesus calls this woman a dog. If she would have not gotten past that, it wouldn't be in the scripture. Get past that. In, In fact, don't just get past it, embrace it. If you, if we're holding on to that, we're good. We're going to be terrible for the world. We'll be like, there's. I don't want people to be like me. I want people to be like him. Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hey, God wants to reward you. He wants to reward you in ways that you cannot possibly fathom and that your confidence Your confidence in seeking him isn't so much you seeking him and look at you, you're so pious and jealous. It's being so confident that he has come to seek and save you, that you see how far he's gone from heaven to earth to die on that cross between, between two thieves for your sin and to give you a new life. When you embrace that reality and you see how far he's come to get you, man, it inspires you to run after him. And say, yeah, I'm letting go. Paul says, everything up into this life that I've accomplished is like filthy rags to me. I'm pursuing him. I'm letting go of what lies behind and I'm going after him. And that's what we see in this woman. And my brothers and sisters, it would be so life-giving if this became a living reality for you. And I want to call you to it. Why don't we stand? The gospel is for those who yet to, have yet to believe in the gospels for those who do believe, yet struggle at times to believe it. Father, we just thank you for sending your son. Jesus, we thank you for paying the ultimate price. We thank you, Lord, for your drawing in of our faith and desire. God, we thank you. I just thank you for the example of this one, but I also thank you for the example of our young kids who came back ecstatic, that Jesus loves them. Not ecstatic because God's going to give them a new iPhone, but ecstatic that the God of the universe loves them. 
God, reveal to us your goodness, that you want to draw us into yourself, that you want to show us a joy and a peace and assuredness and a confidence that we can't even fathom. That's too good to be true, but it is true because you've promised it to us. And God, we're not going to show contempt for you by not asking. We're not going to show contempt for you by putting our hands in our pockets, sitting on our couches and not pursuing you, not asking, not contending for the pain in our life, but also contending for the pain in this world. We're not out of guilt. You've, you've taken that from us. You took our guilt, you took our shame, and you've replaced that with love and purpose. God, and with that vision in mind, God, we, may we be those that take no rest or give no rest until you fulfill your promises. 